This is a Big Timing Comedy production. Welcome backstage. Uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist. VIP only. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are band-aids. Are you jumping or am I under-medicated? You're listening to Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. I'm with the band, okay? To say that I am excited about this episode is a total understatement. Anybody that has ever met me in my entire life knows that I am an 80s fanatic. I guess some people could say I'm obsessed. It's my decade. It's my childhood. It's what I grew up on. It's what I know. It's what I appreciate. It's what I truly, absolutely love. And to be able to do this episode with our guest tonight, I can't even put into words. I think I'm actually speechless on this podcast. So about a year ago, uh, my friend Nestor, who does another show in the Baltimore area, was at the Ravens game. Ravens versus Steelers at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. And I was on the other side of the stadium. It's a very big stadium, if you've never been. And was there supporting the Baltimore Ravens. And Nestor sends me a text message. And he says, you want to come over to my seats, like right now. And I said, I'm on the other side of the stadium. Might take me like 20 minutes to get over to you. He goes, trust me, you want to come now. I have Thomas Dolby sitting with me. I dropped everything that I was carrying. <laughs> Every single thing that I was carrying, I just threw it on my friend's lap. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to go to the other side of the stadium right now. I will return when I can. I might be back. <laughs> I may or may not. Take the car keys. I'll call you soon. <laughs> so I jet over. I'm weaving in and out of people and I'm going around the food areas outside and I'm going over to his seats. And there is Professor Thomas Dolby sitting with my friend Nestor with a hat on, watching the Ravens game. And I think I was speechless at that point, too. This is somebody that I have, again, grown up with and really, really, truly admired um, throughout my life. And so it really was an honor to be able to sit with him and watch the Ravens game. And we sat there for the most part in silence. We chatted a little bit found out a little bit about him and what he's doing here in Baltimore. And he lives here now. And I reached out to him when I started the show and he was very receptive to my interview request. And luckily for me, I got to go a couple of weeks ago and step into the beautiful Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. And here's what happened. Okay, so we are here with Backstage Pass and Meredith Marks and honored to be at the beautiful Peabody Institute in Baltimore, Maryland with Mr. Thomas Dolby, Mr. 80s himself. Welcome to our show. It's Professor 80s himself these <laughs> days, if you don't mind. Yes. Well, why are we here? I mean, you have come to the Peabody. Uh, you came here in March 2014, Professor of the Arts for Johns Hopkins and now at the Peabody Institute, you're leading a new four-year undergrad degree program. Tell me about that. So I came in 2014 uh, to help launch the new Film and Media Center in Station North, which is a joint venture with MICA. That's now up and running, and it's gorgeous if you get an opportunity to go there. Um, I, I spent three years uh, teaching film music to uh, the, the students there. And this year, I've moved on to the Peabody Conservatory uh, in Mount Vernon, where next year I'll be launching a new media music degree. Uh, that means specifically that students will be learning to compose 
music and create soundtracks for computer games, virtual reality, location-based entertainment, as well as more conventional media like film and TV. So, uh, so that's what I'm doing here, and it's very exciting. Very interesting. And how do the students take to you? I mean, you have quite an interesting background, and I know um, we're in a whole different generation here. Um, I'm a teacher myself as well for college. So how do they respond? Do well, they even know? Can they grasp it? They don't know me from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> their parents do. I think their parents sort of prod them into, oh, we should take this course with Thomas Dolby. Uh, or the you know their teachers, right. uh, but the kids don't know and they don't really care. Um, and in fact, it raises a few eyebrows that uh, I was never classically trained as a musician. You know, I did a few years of piano lessons and and sang in a choir, picked up a minimal amount of theory, but I was I was really off on my own. You know, teaching myself by sort of playing jazz piano records at half speed and things like that. And then I got an interest in electronic music, and you know, in the late seventies and England, there was nowhere to go and study electronic music. Right. Uh, that probably wouldn't have been in the U.S. even at that point. Uh, so I left school, left high school, you know, with a minimal of qualifications, and I worked in a fruit and vegetable shop, you know, to support my late night punk rock habit, <laughs> uh, and save up for a synthesizer, which would have taken a lifetime at those at the prices that that we had in those days. And of course, synthesizers were very big and bulky and didn't really stay in tune. True. And only played one note at a time, if you were lucky. Uh, so things improved quite rapidly. The main thing was that, you know, through my career, through the, the stages of sort of the one-man band, um, putting out my own albums, making videos for things like She Blinded Me With Science when MTV came along, and then moving later into film composing, TV commercials, video games, CD-ROMs, laser discs, uh, the World Wide Web, mobile phones, and so on. At each stage of my career, because I'm irresistibly drawn to these new technologies, I had to sort of navigate these uncharted waters uh, and use my own creativity to get around obstacles. Mm -hmm. And I think a big difference really these days is that you can get the solutions to most things with a few key presses. You know, you can Google it. You can find a YouTube video of somebody that did it for you. Um, you can post a message on a, on, a, on a forum and by morning you'll have a dozen answers. Uh, there's all sorts of resources, you know, if you hit a roadblock. But what it doesn't do is exercise your creative young mind in, in problem solving and finding ways around these obstacles. And I think that's absolutely vital. That's been vital to my career. So whereas some of the more academic and scholarly faculty here can teach them great fundamentals and high level of excellence in, in their instruments or their voice or, you know, their composition skills, uh, I can give them something rather different, which is, you know, how do you uh, think outside the box? How do you use your creativity to solve the problems which you are sure to encounter? And that's priceless. I want to be in that class. <laughs> I want to go back to school and take your class. So you're considered to be the pioneer of new wave and electric music. Do you consider yourself a pioneer? I really don't because, you know, as I've, as, I've, as I've explained, it was very hard in those days to be an electronic musician. You know, only a handful of people had the fortitude to, to attack it. Right. Uh, that doesn't make us pioneers, really. I think that, um, you know, the pioneers came before me. Um, they were people like John Cage and... Uh, Wendy Carlos and, and Brian Eno and, the, you know, there are plenty of people that really laid the groundwork, Craftwork and Tangerine Dream, laid the groundwork for the stuff that, that I did. But I was part of the new wave in the UK who adopted electronic instruments and did something fairly punk with them. You know, I think that was the, that was the point, really. We had this sort of DIY ethic about electronic music. So there was nothing to stop you making entire pop records using just a couple of black boxes that you soldered together. Right. And speaking of punk, um, you headlined the very first Steam Stock in California, which was about mm -hmm. steampunk and diesel punk music. Tell me what was that like? I mean, explain to the people that don't get that part of it. What is that? Diesel punk. Yeah, okay, so, you know, I have a, a loose affiliation with steampunk and dieselpunk. Um, Amanda Palmer said that I am to steampunk what Iggy Pop was to punk, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, I'm thinking about that for a okay, second. Okay, <laughs> yeah. 
question um, in my head. I, I, you know, really, if you look at my lyrics to my songs, um, I always envisioned this sort of alternative universe, um, this dystopian parallel future, past, whenever. Um, it's almost as if what had happened if the Germans had successfully invaded Britain in the in the 1940s you know what sort of world would we have been living in and and what would my role of it been and I always saw myself as a sort of dissident underground resistance fighter using broadcasting and music and communication to sort of connect to the the resistance and so that was a very strong theme in a lot of my early work if you look at songs like airwaves or radio silence or one of our submarines um, it was a very strong flavor to that. And this was, you know, the Cold War was still going on in Europe in, in the early 80s. Right. So that was very much the flavor. So in the course of that, I had a fascination with um, sort of World War II surplus costumes um, with strange vintage field measurement equipment and uh, canvas flying helmets and goggles and... and uh, Bakelite headphones and things like that. And over the course of the last decade or so, um, aspects of that sort of style have been adopted and have become a real sort of movement of their own, you know, with steampunk, which is very much a sort of Victorian equivalent of, well, what if we had to use clockwork and, and um, uh, steam pressure and so on instead of electronics? Um, the diesel punk aspect was a little bit more Mad Max because it was kind of like this sort of post apocalyptic dystopian future where you know petrol was very rare and you had to cobble together some sort of turbo unit for your your you know mad max inspired go-kart and you know you're wearing this combination of sort of leather and canvas and trench coats and and all the rest of it and um it's very much more a sort of mad max style to it i watched mad max i can definitely picture I can picture that. So my brother is a sound engineer, and he said some of the great sound engineers that he knows uses your stuff, Thomas Dolby stuff, to tune their sound systems. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, I think it's pretty hilarious, really, given that uh, a lot of my stuff I engineered myself, and I have no training in, in sound engineering Um I just generally crank up the faders and knobs until something starts to smell funny, you know, and then I know that I'm I'm over, I'm over the limit. Uh, but I don't know much about you know VU meters and and uh, decibels and things like that. Um, people use a song of mine called Pulp Culture to test out you know PA systems in in sound checks in big stadiums, and and I've had a lot of sound engineers come up to me and go, man, how did you get that snare sound? And I go, well. I got a Ludwig snare. I go, yes. I put it in a room. Yes. I put a mic up to it. Yes. And I hit it with a stick. Yes. And I sampled that into my Fairlight and put it, <laughs> put it all the way through the song. Compression, EQ? Nah, not really. No, no. Just just straight into the Fairlight and all the way through the song. And that was it. Great. Um, I work with a brilliant engineer called Bill Betrell, who really, um, you probably know him as a co producer for Michael Jackson in the later years, but also yes. he was behind Sheryl Crow and the Tuesday Night Music Club and so on. And Great Bill album. Bill Bottrell was really responsible for the move from the sort of the automated fader excess of the 1980s, you know, as typified by Trevor Horn productions on Frankie Goes to Hollywood or mm -hmm. something like that, mm -hmm. um, into the sparser 90s. In the 90s, there was a sort of a, a reactionary move back to we want to hear what a snare sounds like if you just hit it with a stick in the room. We want to hear if you plug a really good vintage, you know, Fender Strat into a, a, a beautiful twin reverb with, with valves and mic it up properly. I want to hear what that playing sounds like mm -hmm. rather than this sort of highly automated um, uh, sound of the 80s. Now it would come full circle, of course, and it's sort of really back to this very manicured, manufactured uh, sound in pop music. Uh, but there was a, a period there in the 80s where things got very raw for a while, which was refreshing. Do you listen to any of the current stuff that's out? And and if so, um, who do you think has that good electric sound now? 
I, I don't listen to a lot of contemporary music, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think that it's become very mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of so integrated into the stuff that you hear in the in the um, in the charts on the radio that you almost don't notice anymore. It's rather like you know, in the eighties there were gay bars. Now there aren't really gay bars anymore because people are all around. You know, are m- mm-hmm. more open to different strokes, and so it's become yes. more mainstream. Uh, same thing, really. I think with with electronic music. I mean, unfortunately, I can't get away from it because I have twin ten-year-old girls, and you know they make me put things on in the car that I just don't want to. Yeah, well, that's our job as parents to be curmudgeons and, and right? complain about the poor quality of the stuff our kids. Are but I do my to. best to expose them to the really good stuff, including Thomas Dolby. <laughs> they have heard you many, many times in the car. So your book, you just got back from the UK, The Speed of Sound. Um, You went through some of your old journals, devices that you had. Um, You were kind of getting your stories together in different ways and kind of pieced them together and and threw them into a book. Um, Talk about, and I haven't had a chance to get it, I I have to admit. Now, I did listen online to some of the uh, uh, voiceover, you know, the the voice spoken part of it. Yeah, the audio part. And thank you. And so what was your most memorable story and maybe your most proud story that you put in that book? I mean, there's a lot of it that I'm proud of and very little that I would um, that I would go back and, and change. I think probably, you know, some highlights would be playing at Live Aid with David Bowie in 1985. Yes. Um, playing The Wall at the Berlin Wall with Roger Waters in 1990. Um Getting to play with some of my teenage heroes like Stevie Wonder or Joni Mitchell or George Clinton. Um, and the, dare I say, the discovery of, of one of my favorite bands of all time, uh, Prefab Sprout, who I produced uh, three albums for in the, in the UK. Not so well known over here, but really worth checking out. Um, if you get a chance to go listen to Prefab Sprout. I will. So, that, you know, some, some great stuff uh, in the book, some... Um, Extraordinary encounters, really. I, you know, I was sort of thrusted into the spotlight uh, when She Blinded Me with Science became a hit and I was all over MTV and so on. And I got these very flattering accolades from my peers and my heroes at the time. And it was like Monopoly where you sort of buy into every square you land on, you know, early on. I got all these wild offers to go and collaborate with people. And so I, I, I rushed off and did them. But it was sort of odd to me because I'm not a very... Um, extroverted kind of person you know I'm, I'm a bit of a hermit basically so to find myself so much in the spotlight was a bit of a shock but you do it so well and people love that and really are receptive to that so we're glad that you came out of that shell a little bit well I think a lot of artists actually you know they, they come out of their shell for minutes or days at a time and uh, and then retreat uh, back and then, and then retreat back <laughs> into it so you've played with so many talents, like you were talking about Joni Mitchell, you played with the Thompson Twins and Howard Jones and Belinda Carlisle and Farner. Of all of the people that you have played with, I mean, you t- you hear people say you get goosebumps from people. Has anybody given you goosies? Uh, I think probably the most goosebump, goosebumpy moment was um, just before the Grammys in 1985. Uh, I'd been asked to perform at the awards show with Herbie Hancock and Stevie Wonder and Howard Jones. And we'd been asked by the producers to do a medley of one song from each of us, finishing up with the national anthem. And they wanted to highlight the synthesizer. So this was going to be a sort of celebration of the fact that the synthesizer had arrived as a mainstream instrument. So the night before the show, we were in Stevie Wonder's cavernous recording studio in in, uh, East LA, which used to be a big theater com- cinema complex and we'd gotten the medley done but it was getting towards the end of the evening and people were sort of dispersing and I was concerned because we had to get up and show up and, and record the show and we needed to record the national anthem and this is this is, uh, quite topical right now because um yes it is I went to look for Stevie who had sort of disappeared and usually Stevie is surrounded by a big entourage but he was nowhere to be found and I wandered around the corridors of, of Wonderland his studio and coming from a little back room, I heard some blues piano. And I went in there, and it was not much bigger than a blues, blues closet. And there, on his knees, on both knees, was Stevie playing an upright piano, playing some blues. 
and there was nobody around. So I walked in the room and I said, hey, it's Thomas. Uh, Steve, we need to get this uh, national anthem thing done. How are we going to do it? And he said, well, do you have any ideas? And I said, I was thinking a sort of a slow groove and like a, you know, a nice bass line and a sort of sexy soul version of it. And he, and he said, no, oh, we can't do that. I said, why is that? And he said, Marvin did that at an NBA final. And he went out on the ice with just him and a bass player and a TR-808. And he sang the most gorgeous version of the national anthem. And, you know, Marvin never got on, on TV again till the day he died because the network bosses couldn't handle the idea of a black man singing a sexy soul version of the national anthem wow. on national TV. Wow. And I said, OK, wow, we better not do that. But that must have sounded amazing. Right. And without missing a beat, he started playing. Stevie Wonder and me in a, in a broom closet, him playing the national anthem on the piano and channeling Marvin Gaye's version of it that he remembered from several years before. Mm. And my heart stopped beating. I mean, that was, talk about goosebumps. My yeah. goosebumps had goosebumps. Oh, I love that. And in between lines, he was like beatboxing the TR-808 and he played like a couple of lines of it and he got up and felt his way out of the room and he said it was kind of like that, but we better not go there. <laughs> and I was left standing, <laughs> completely stunned. And any one of those licks... I would cut off a limb to be able to sing like that. Oh, and it was wow. a moment lost in time and I was the only witness. You know? Oh, wow. Um, ironically, I mean, YouTube has a way of catching you up on, on history. But years later, I told this story and somebody said, oh, yeah, I think I saw that clip of Marvin on YouTube. And I'm like, really? Because yeah. I wasn't in the country at the time. So I went. Is it on? It's on YouTube. It and, is. And it was just the way I'd imagined it all this time. And I was blubbing my eyes. Okay, out. we're going to go search that. Okay. I'm searching that today because I have to see that. That's crazy. Wow. Wow. Amazing. I'm, I'm glad you shared that because that is a really good goosey story. I love those. Um, Def Leppard, you played Session Keys on Pyromania, but you played under the name Booker T. Boffin. Why was that? I had recently done Foreigner 4, uh, same producer, by the way, Mutt Langer, mm -hmm. and he asked me to come in and play on the Def Leppard album. And I was slightly concerned that because I wasn't yet very well known, you know, as a solo artist, that people would sort of identify me as some kind of hard rock keyboard player. I thought I'm going to get Anthrax and, you know, ACDC are going to be on the phone next. <laughs> nice, um, nice. Uh, so I decided to do it under assumed name. And um, Mutt Langer's name for me was Booker T, you know, and this is because Booker T of the MGs, mm -hmm. the the uh, organist on Green Onions and stuff. Yes. And uh, Boffin him. in the UK is like a sort of geeky kid, you know, sort of brainy type that, you know, that, that oh. does the uh, the shortwave radio uh, broadcasts and things like that. So Booker T Boffin was my, uh, was my nickname. And nice. I've got multiple platinum uh, albums on my walls at home saying presented to Booker T Boffin for <laughs> keyboard playing on Paramania. Yeah. I love that. Okay, speaking of names, uh, Marks is a stage name. Dolby is a stage name. Tell me about how you got Dolby. I thought you were talking about Richard Marks there for a minute. No, oh, of course me, it makes sense. So, me, Marks. Okay, so why did you choose Marks? Uh, my quick story is that I was getting into radio. This was 18 years ago, uh -huh. and I wanted to use my mother's maiden name, Martin, mm. on the air because I didn't want to use my own. Hmm. For safety reasons and stuff. And I was a model and I was on my comp cards that had Meredith Martin. Well, when I got there, there was already a Kathy Martin and she said, no, I'm the only Martin here. So I sat in a in a in an office with Jerry Booth, who is another traffic reporter here in the area. And he's in D.C. now. And I nicknamed him Daddy Jerry because we were sitting there across the table just like you and I are right now. And we're tossing back names. And he goes, I like the MM sound. And I said, yeah, Meredith. And he goes, Meredith Marks. And I said, but it's got to have an X. And he sure. goes, born, done. And that's when Meredith Marks came to be. That's great. How about Dolby? <laughs> so my last name is Robertson. Uh, when I was in school, my nickname was Dolby. And the reason was I was the first kid in school in the 1970s that had a portable cassette machine. And it was pretty heavy, actually. It would sort of give you back problems, I think, or certainly would now. But And I had this massive pair of headphones, you know, with a curly... Everything I mean, was bigger back then. Everything was Everything. bigger. <laughs> but this was the envy of uh, all the other kids. And of course, 
cassette players in those days had to have the Dolby button. You know, uh, mm. nobody really knew what it did or yes. why it was there. But if you had that, you were willing to spend an extra twenty bucks on the product if it had the Dolby button. Um, so uh, they nicknamed me Dolby. And uh, after I left school, um, I was, you know, as I mentioned, I was in the the punk new wave scene in the UK in London at the time, and. I was Tom Robertson, and there was a Tom Robinson out there who is now actually a BBC radio DJ, but at the time had Tom Robinson band and uh, was unknown. And I went backstage and I said, this isn't going to work either. Um, so whoever makes it first, the other one should change his name. And we sort of shook on that. And about three months after that, Tom Robinson was in the charts with a song called 2468 Motorway, and I had to change my name. So the natural thing to do was to use my childhood nickname, which was Dolby. And how did they take that? Was there an issue? Yes. There was a little done, issue. You've done your homework. Was... Uh, I do my homework sometimes, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> unfortunately. So, so you know, in the, in the early 80s, so I hit with things like She Blowing Me as Science and Hyperactive and, and um, uh, Dolby Laboratories, which was founded by Dr. Ray Dolby, also an Englishman, actually, but obviously no relation. Um, Dr. Ray had a son called Thomas. Uh, who was, I think, 10 or something at the time. And he was getting teased at school, Thomas Dolby, Thomas Dolby. And uh, his mum didn't like that very much. And when they found out that it was an assumed name, mm -hmm. uh, he managed to get the lawyers to come up with a um, with a suit based on the idea that I was deliberately trying to cash in on the brand, which mm -hmm. they'd obviously, for years, had invested a lot in. They right. saw it as dilution of their brand. So they took me to court and uh, it didn't go very far. It went a few rounds and ended up sort of a stalemate. And, and Dolby, you've been ever since. I've been Dolby ever since. And actually, uh, Dr. Ray, bless him, is no longer with us. Uh, just last week, I was in San Francisco and Dolby Labs rolled out the red carpet to me and uh, gave me a great tour of their facility. There's nobody there that remembers, you know, the, those days. And um, a lot of them, are, lots of the current employees are people I've worked with in the past in music or in technology. And uh, we may actually be working with them uh, at Johns Hopkins um, yes. in the future. And so uh, it's all water under the bridge at this point. Well, if something comes about, you'll have to come back on the show and talk to us about it because okay. that's going to be interesting to hear about. So I put out there um, that I was meeting with you and a couple of people sent in some questions. So if you don't mind, of course. I'll ask. Um, well, uh, uh, my friend Bronson Wagner said that the Flat Earth is his favorite album. Um, Amanda Cutter said Rockula <laughs> was campy. And she loved it and wants to know how you felt about playing the villain <laughs> yeah that's one that people try and blackmail with from time to time <laughs> send me oh, bitcoin no. or else i will i will show the, show the world rockula um i'm not really an actor my, my wife kathleen is an actor a very good one and um uh you know over the years i've been offered a few sort of cameos and different things and uh, it's always fun to do it's a little bit different and so rockula is a sort of rock vampire halloween movie yeah. uh, shot in a shoestring um, featuring guest appearances also by uh, Tony Basil and B.B. King. And um, they asked me to do it and, and play the villain whose name was Stanley, who is a sort of evil uh, undertaker. Um, and I did that in a, in a scary blonde wig and uh, some very outrageous uh, sort of silk suits. Oh. Did you, did you get to keep any of the uh, costumes? Yes, yes. Okay. They're hidden in a closet in Baltimore. You heard it here first. They're sort of like wedding gowns. You know, it's like <laughs> they never come out of mothballs and I probably wouldn't fit into them anyway. It'd be nice to try and just maybe even see. It could be a fun Halloween costume. You never know. Um, my friend Tina Zeller said, who is your dream collaborative partner? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a good one, actually. I, I think most of my teenage heroes I've met and worked with. I mean, the one exception would be Brian Eno, who I've met a few times, but never actually worked with him. And there's a bunch of interesting coincidences. I mean, he was he was born in Woodbridge and now lives outside Oxford. I grew up outside Oxford and now live outside Woodbridge. Um, neither of us has much hair and we both play synthesizer. So there's something going on there. Um, we both play with David Bowie. Uh, this is sort of, you know, after dinner trivia questions here. This should be on a card. I know, right? Well, you never know when you're going to get asked different things. 
uh, I was supposed to go see Bowie. My dad and I flew down to Sicily. It's my very first overseas flight. I didn't take too well to that and I got sick. So he got to go and do sound for Bowie and hang with Bowie in Sicily. And I got the hotel room. Wow. Interesting. So I didn't know he'd ever played in Sicily. That's cool. Yes. That was uh, <clears throat> 1996. Hmm. Summer, 96. Yeah. Interesting. So, but at least you got Bowie. That's good. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about Live Aid and talk to people that just take them back. Tell them what that was like because um, this show likes to give people kind of that inside glimpse. Hmm. What are some of the things that you can tell our listeners that they may not know about <clears throat> that show? Well, I mean, the first thing you have to know is that my generation of British musicians uh, completely idolized Bowie and had done from an early age, you know, from sort of pre-Ziggy Stardust, we'd followed, um, you know, each one of the chameleon-like changes that he'd been through. And so every time he came up with a new style or a new look, we'd be totally fascinated. And in those days, you know, you would know months in advance about a new album coming out. You'd read the press about it. You'd be lined up at the record store to buy it. You'd take it home and you'd play it. Side one, side two, side one, side two for days while mm -hmm. pouring over the album cover and the lyrics and the the credits and so on. And then you would get New Musical Express and you'd read the interview with him and you'd listen out for it on the radio and so on. And uh, so when you idolized somebody in those days, it was really a special and rarefied thing. And you didn't have 10,000 other choices, you know. So it's like in those days, you're either a Bowie fan or you were like a progressive music fan, you know, and you're into Floyd and Yes and Genesis and stuff like that. Um, and I was one of the Bowie fans. And so um, my whole generation had, had sort of grown up idolizing him. So to get to meet and work with your idol like that is, is a stunning moment. And it actually came about because two of my sort of psychic musicians, uh, Matthew Seligman and Kevin Armstrong, had played with Bowie on Absolute Beginners and on the duet he did with Mick Jagger of Dancing in the Street. Mm -hmm. And in the summer of 1985, it came up very suddenly that... Um, this Live Aid concert was going to come together. You know, Bob Geldof put it together and really only had two or three weeks to pull it together. And I think most of us at the time didn't really know the significance of it. It was a big gig, obviously, Wembley Stadium, 100,000 people, but we didn't realize the global significance of it. And this is really the early days of concerts being live cast around the world from one single location. Mm -hmm. So although it's a big, you know, big venue, it was, it was really one of the first big concerts that became a global event like that yes so um bowie asked me to help put a band together his you know regular working band were in the states doing different shows people like earl slick and and carlos alomar and so on were, were playing other other tours and so he decided to use young english musicians and so he called matthew and kevin and they said why don't you get thomas he's a producer and he can help flesh out the rest of the band. So I brought in the drummer from Prefab Sprout and the sax player and a couple of girl vocalists and so on. And we had very, very little time to rehearse with Mr. Bowie because he was actually filming Labyrinth oh, at the time. Of that movie. Um, at, at, for George Lucas at uh, yes. Pinewood or, or one of those studios. And he had to be up at four o'clock every morning getting his scary blonde wig and makeup on. Yes. And by the time we got him, it was the end of the day and he was absolutely exhausted. And we had him for three nights of rehearsals only. And so he would give us a list of songs that he wanted us to work out because he was trying to figure out which the four were going to be that he was going to play. Mm -hmm. And early on, he was he was actually focused on plugging his then single, which was Loving the Alien. You know, it's a good opportunity to plug my single. But as he got, he got sort of focused on it, he realized that it wasn't about plugging your single. It was more universal than that and so he picked sort of anthemic songs um but we never actually played the four songs back to back we we had played each of them in rehearsal but never in a sequence uh, until we did it on stage at live aid so we were really bluffing our way through it now on the day it was a saturday afternoon and london was absolutely chock-a-block with traffic because of live aid and it was a beautiful day and everywhere you went you could hear the preamble coming out of an upstairs window or the car stopped at a traffic light with their window rolled down. You would hear the, the, the preview going on. And I was instructed to go to Battersea Heliport to get a helicopter to Wembley Stadium because the traffic was going to be bad. So I get down there and I'm going to be taking this helicopter with Bowie. So the two of us in this helicopter. And there's a gaggle of fans down there to get his autograph and stuff. Now, David Bowie was a lovely guy and he was very inspiring to be around, very 
civil and gentlemanly. And this is a big surprise to me because I, you know, I always imagined that he'd be a bit of a diva, a bit of a brat. You know, I'd seen this BBC documentary called Cracked Actor in which he was completely strung out, you know, mm-hmm. the thin white Duke period. And he was in the back of this limo and he had this can of orange juice or carton of orange juice. He said, I'm like a fly in this orange juice. <laughs> that, was, that was who I was expecting. Um, but in fact, he was like, he was the perfect English gentleman, you know, until we got in the helicopter because he was, he was absolutely terrified of flying. So he turned his back on this gaggle of fans and looked at the helicopter with the rotors going around and his face just dropped. And he had this Homburg hat that he pulled down over his over his eyes and he chain smoked all the way, much to the chagrin of the pilot who kept telling him to put out a cigarette. As soon as we got in the helicopter, he's going, how long does this take? Are there any high buildings or pylons or anything in the way between here and Wembley? Are you going the clouds? Do we have to fly in the cloud? And he's chain smoking all the way. Wow. And I just have this memory of, of it was only a, like a 10 minute flight of banking over Wembley Stadium with the iconic twin gold towers and looking down and seeing the crowd and seeing there was the early days of a jumbotron. And there on the screen was Freddie Mercury crooning up to the heavens in the middle of We Are the Champions. Oh, cool. Like and we landed sort of in the in the boondocks behind Wembley Stadium, opened the doors to a couple of hundred paparazzi. And as soon as we were on the ground, he looked at me and he said, oh, I love this bit. And he opened the door and went out to all of these flashing uh, flashbulbs and things. And five minutes later, we were at the side of the stage watching Bob Geldof introduce us. And he nudges me in the ribs and he says, let's start with TVC15 which is only like a honky-tonk piano intro, you know, solo intro, which is not exactly my style. So I had to kick off the show with this piano intro, but it was just a fantastic experience. And even though, you know, we'd, we'd had so little rehearsal, I barely knew the chord sequences and stuff. I knew, you know, they were sort of in my heart and in my blood, really. Um, so it was easy to follow at that point, uh, especially when I would just look at, you know, his back in his blue suit and beyond him, 100,000 uh, fans it was absolutely a superb moment and this is on youtube as well right yeah yeah i'm looking this one up too gotta watch this one wow that's crazy i love that story so let's talk a little bit more intimately about you thomas dolby the person um what drew you to baltimore was it simply just coming to work for hopkins at that time or had you been to our city did you Love our city. What brought you here? I'd been to Baltimore several times. Uh, most recently, when I was on tour, um, I stopped down uh, by the harbour for, for dinner and went for a walk around the harbour and just thought, this what a lovely place this was. I hadn't been to Mount Vernon. I hadn't been to, you know, Hamden or, or Station North or uh, a lot of the, the lovely areas, nor had I been to the poverty-stricken, war-torn areas. Uh, so it, I, I hadn't really seen Baltimore, you know, but I had a good impression of it. Um, I decided in 2014 to come here, A, because the position at Johns Hopkins was a very interesting one, launching the film centre in Station North. Um, and I was sort of flattered that an academic institution would consider me, you know, material. I left school at 16, didn't go to college. Um, I don't have a PhD. Um, so I, I was delighted that they wanted me. Um, in addition to that, my wife is from New York. Uh, her family are in New York and sort of needed her help. And so we wanted to be on the East Coast. Uh, but New York is too crazy. I've just never I've just never felt at home yeah. there. You know, it's just too nuts. And um, especially now it's so unbelievably expensive. And I don't know how teachers or professors can afford to live there at all. Um, whereas Baltimore is affordable. You know, I can live close to the water. I have a little speedboat sort of docked in front of my apartment. I can go sailing on the harbour or out in the bay. You just pull that right around to Pier 6, yeah. park it, and listen to music a- whenever you want to. nip across to Little Havana's or I go absolutely. do my shopping at Safeway in my speed. I don't have a car. So I go down to Safeway and do my shopping. I'll go to, you know, Fells Point to get pastry and coffee for breakfast. Um, it's like living in Venice. It's fantastic. Uh, I do have a bicycle and I use that to get around. Uh, and I use Ubers and buses, and um, I'm very happy about not having a car at all. Uh, the only sad thing is that I haven't really seen the countryside around, you know. So when people talk about some creek or river or mountain that they hiked up, you know, I've yet to see that. So that's the only thing. Okay, downside. Thomas is going to hop in my car one day, and I'm going to take him for the ultimate Baltimore area 
tour that he has not seen. That would be great. Thank you. That's going to happen. <laughs> I will make sure of that because I was born and raised here, so I know my areas. Okay. You guys uh, look at each other, you and your wife, and I ask all my guests this. You've toured the world. You've seen the world. You look at each other and you say, we're exhausted. We need a vacation. Where do you go? Ideally, we just turn off our phones and devices and disconnect the internet and stay exactly where we are. Um, I mean, our other house is on the east coast of England, and it's in a tiny village with a population of 23. And uh, our, wow. kids, our kids are there in England. Um, uh, it's just tranquil and beautiful there. So we mm-hmm. tend to spend summers there, you know, the academic year being what it is. I'm able to go back for a few months in the summer. And that gives me time to do more writing or do more music or just hang out with my kids uh, who are all in their 20s, incidentally, at this point. Um, and uh, that's really sort of the land of my forefathers. And so uh, it's great to get back there. That's so nice to be able to do that. So uh, going back almost two years, Ravens and Steelers game at M&T Bank Stadium. I get a call from my friend Nestor Aparicio, who is a sports talk guy here in Baltimore. And he says, hey, Mayor, come on over. I've got great seats. Come sit with me for a few minutes. I've got somebody here. I know you're going to want to meet him. I said, who? He said, Thomas Dolby. I said, I'm on my way. Literally threw everything that I had on the seat, ran across the other side. I'm going, I can't run. I'm going to be sweating when I meet Thomas Dolby. Because everybody knows that I'm an 80s freak. I mean, I love, live, breathe, everything 80s. And, um, you know, having you as such an 80s icon, I couldn't wait to get over there. So I had to calm myself down and go over there and be very humble and, hello, how are you? And just, I'm sitting there and I didn't really know what to say. And I'm going, I'm sitting next to Thomas Dolby. I'm sitting next to Thomas Dolby. This is crazy and I looked at Nestor and I go how is this happening how how is this happening and I just thought it was the neatest thing um you were so gracious and sweet and I loved watching you watch the game he calls you the good luck charm yes I know well okay a couple of things about that number one (laughs) I didn't notice the schwitzing at all so you don't have to worry about that good Um, okay (laughs) number two if you want to really want to blackmail me Go Google Thomas Dolby and David Bowie backstage at Live Aid 1985 because there is this clip where we've come off stage and I am that person, that fanboy person that you are sitting next to me times 10 because I've got this look, I've got a can of beer in my hand and a rolled up cigarette and I've just come off stage and I've got this goofy look on my face and the camera's rolling, we're being interviewed and I've got this look on my face that sort of says, I'm sitting next to David fucking Bowie. (laughs) And like they ask me some question, I make some inane crack, and Bowie sort of looks at me like, what is he talking about? And then they ask him a question about Ethiopia and the famine, and he looks at the camera and he says, "It's really important that people find it in their hearts to don't." He's like completely controlled, having just come off stage, mm-hmm. and I look at like this complete, uh, you know, something the cat dragged in. So that was one thing. All right, back to the Steelers. So Nestor, as you know, was in music. Uh, journalism before he ever got into sports casting and so right. he knew all about me from then so when he found out I was a Baltimore resident he decided to have me on his show and he said look we can talk about the Premier League if you want you know but but uh, we chatted about music and so on I don't know much about American sports and he said you know do you follow uh, the NFL at all and I said well not really I mean American football is starting to get popular in the UK but it's kind of funny because they tend to license uh, you know a game off uh, NBC or somebody and have, they have the American commentary but if it ever gets too confusing they fade down the the commentary and a BBC voice comes in and says the Steelers wide receiver was out of bounds when he received the touchdown pass and then they fade the sound <laughs> up again just for the morons in England that sort of don't get it and um, so I was telling him this and he, and he said all right so you don't know much about it. well I'll give you the full experience so we, we met at his apartment and we walked through the sort of tailgate party uh, under the overpass there right and Nesta was the celebrity you know it's like circles of people were forming around him to hear what he had to say about the and game people love him people absolutely love him they didn't, yes. didn't know who I was uh, and that was rather nice in and of itself but he said oh don't expect too much from this game it's the end of the season there's really not much at stake here they're our old enemy but you know we've got our third flight quarterback and and it's not going to be that big a deal and we'll probably lose 
and um, we got in the in the box, you know, and 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 Nestor was doing his running commentary, and hey presto, the uh, Ravens started winning, and he turned and looked at me and said, "Well, you must be our good luck charm." Mm-hmm. And he was actually surprised. I was even surprised myself. I knew more about it than I thought. Well, it was a really fun game, and it was an honor to be able to sit next to you, and it's a bigger honor to be able to sit and interview you for my show. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this, and um, we're not finished with you. You're going to come back on. We have more to discuss, okay? Great. You're local, and it's great to have you here. We're, we're very uh, excited to have you in town. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you so much. So that happened. <laughs> I mean, yeah, pinch me. Breathe. That happened. In through the nose, out through the mouth. Breathe. Now, Mikey, um, I don't do this to people usually, but I thought, what the hell? And he's going to laugh about this if he hears this. Uh, after the interview, I stood up and I said, what are you doing this weekend? And I'm not even going to try to do his beautiful accent because I do it no justice. He's just an amazing speaker all around. Add the British accent on top and it's incredible. (laughs) So he said, I'm doing laundry. And (laughs) I said, well, I happen to have some extra concert tickets this weekend if you would like to join me. Now, the first is to several species, which is at Pier 6 in their Pink Floyd tribute band. And he goes, hmm. Interesting. And then I said, and then your friends are coming. Now, to me, I think that every single person that played in the 80s are all friends with each other because that's your vision and you want to imagine. Shouldn't they be? Right? I mean, it's just they're all, they all played together at some point, right? Isn't that just what it's supposed to be? A big 80s jam out? Actually, no, it's more like that now. <laughs> I think so. Right? So I, he said, who, who is that? And I said, well, the psychedelic furs are coming to the Baltimore soundstage. And he goes, I love the furs. And I said, great. So he said, okay, let's do it. Let me check and, and I'll get back to you, but let's do it. So he texts me and he said he wanted to come to Species, which wait, he did. Wait a minute. Thomas Dolby texted you? Yeah. On your cell phone? Yeah, we're tight like that. It's cool. Show off. Yeah. So... He wanted tickets, and I and I took him there. Um, he's very humble, and he's very private, so he doesn't like to be be out there, which is funny because when he's on stage, he's so vivacious and oh yeah, <laughs> full of life, and I love that. Uh, but when he is out in public, he prefers to be on the quiet, shy side, and I'm very respectful of that. And then we grabbed dinner on that Sunday night. When we were going to the see the psychedelic furs, so we were sitting there over dinner, and he's just telling me more stories, and I am sitting there going, "This is not <laughs> happening." And then we go backstage to the psychedelic furs because he happened to know, you know, a couple of the band members, of course, and to see, I can't even put it into words, to to watch a couple of '80s icons convene backstage in a dressing room and I took some pictures of them it just (laughs) I was a pile of mush dude I don't even know how I held it together and I told him that I I told him that I was a little starstruck (laughs) and he told me that he was completely starstruck with David Bowie so no matter who you are you're always going to have a fan And I am a huge fan of Sir Thomas Dolby, Professor Thomas Dolby. That's right. Music icon Thomas Dolby. And you interviewed him. And guess what? We're going to do it again. I'm going to get him back on this show because he, he has more stories. Now, the book, his book, The Speed of Sound, just arrived on my doorstep yesterday. I'm cracking it open this weekend and I'm burying myself in the covers and reading all about his stories. I love the one with Michael Jackson, the one that he told in the podcast and the, in the interview for this podcast for Stevie wonder. Um, wait until you hear that Mikey, just, Mm. just heavenly. Anyway, that was my beautiful story of, uh, hanging out with Thomas Dolby and he's, 
amazing. So hope you liked that. Okay. Here's a little segment for our show that we like to call Local Flavor. It is where we take a Baltimore-based band, an original band from Baltimore, and put it out there for you guys to hear. Uh, I stumbled upon a band called The Last Year. They were founded in 2012. They're from Baltimore. The album is Static Automatic. We've got Nikki Barr on vocals, who is incredible. Scott Enzyme on bass and synthesizer. Scott Griffith on guitar. And BJ Kerwin, my buddy, who is the drummer. He also plays in a few other bands that I really, 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 really love. And I love these guys. This is the last year. Local flavor right here on Backstage Pass. It's called Right Where You Want Me. It's Maryland. It's local. It's Baltimore. It's local flavor with Meredith Marks. And that was Right Where You Want Me by Baltimore Band The Last Year. You can get more information on them on Facebook, The Last Year, or www.thelastyear.org. 
net. So, oh, this has been such a fun episode. I have to tell you, it's one of my favorites. Who doesn't love hanging out with 80 stars? And I just am smitten, smitten kitten with Thomas Dolby. And, you know, hanging out at the Psychedelic Furs, I said to him, well, where can I see you play? Because I haven't seen you on stage yet. And he ironically said that he has an upcoming show. And all of you can get in on it. If you go to the 80scruise.com, coming up in 2018, March 17th to March 24th, you can hit Fort Lauderdale, Nassau, Montego Bay, Ocho Rios, Coco Cay, and you can see Thomas Dolby. You can hang out with Rick Springfield, and they have almost 90% of this cruise booked. Loverboy, Mike and the Mechanics, Billy Ocean, Lou Graham, the voice of Foreigner, the Tubes. He told me Fee is going to be on that ship. Now, what Thomas doesn't know is I'm going to jump in his suitcase and tag along with him on this cruise. I'm telling you, I'm going to find a way to do it. You just swim out to it from Cabo. That's a good idea, Mikey. (laughs) Of course, we got to close out our show with the greatest song ever. Here's Thomas Dolby, and she blinded me with science. You've been hanging backstage with Backstage Pass and Meredith Marks. Now get your ass off the tour bus. This is a big-timing comedy production.